Just a quick note before we get started today. If you've been enjoying How to Be an Artist and you'd like to support it, please feel free to review it and leave a rating on iTunes. Share it. And of course, you can support How to Be an Artist by going to patreon.com forward slash H2BNA. Thanks, and on with the show. How to Be an Artist. Step 19. Chasing the Shadow. With guest Daniel Ingram. So maybe I can start just by kind of explaining a little bit of what I'm trying to do in this podcast, and then I can kind of go into, I guess, why you're an interesting guest in that context. The, the really simple thing is I have like a few interests that are, seem kind of scattered. I mean, you know, I'm kind of someone that as I have these scattered interests, I'm trying to figure out how they all kind of fit together. Professionally, my, my experience has been as an, as an artist, you know, mostly working in like video games, a little bit of freelance illustration, animation, things like that. But I also have an interest, for whatever reason, in urban form, urban design, things like that. And because of experiences I've had, I'm also very interested in, in meditation and pragmatic dharma. And so I'm really interested in this question of, of how like place and art and spirituality all kind of interconnect. And so I've, I've been much more interested in, in kind of the, the spiritual angle of art over the last few years. Those are kind of the areas of, of interest I've also picked up a more of a meditation habit over the last year, I would say. Discovered MCTB. That's something I can I can explain a little bit once once we get into it. But anyway, I guess a good way to place to start is to introduce you. I'll give it my best shot and then you can kind of fill me in as as you see fit if that's okay. Former emergency room doctor, correct? Yep. Author of MCTB, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, self-proclaimed arhat right? I would say, and maybe an advocate for pragmatic dharma. Yeah. All right. Awesome. <laughs> no changes. Anything else you'd want to add on that? Uh, that's a good start. Currently okay. working to organize researchers to bring scientific methods to the study of meditative and other related practices. Awesome. Okay. So that's the big other project I work on these days. Cool. Yeah. So I knew there was more specifics to it, but I didn't know if it was just confined just to the, the research part of it. So I kind of thought I'd express a little more uh, general general way there. I just want to tell you kind of how I found MCTB, my experience with that, why it was important and, and helpful to me. And then I can kind of have some questions to build off. My experience was about a year ago, it was actually August of last year, I'd been meditating for a while and just kind of casually meditating, always kind of feel like, oh, you know, I need to do this a little bit for whatever depression to, to smooth out the bumps, whatever. And I did a retreat. And then on like, it was a five day retreat on the fourth day of the, of the retreat, I had this big experience where suddenly mm -hmm. there was this light in my chest and I had this euphoria that I'd never experienced before, except when on drugs, I kind of left just, I'm like, wow, I'm cured of my depression. My depression is just gone huge transformative event. I just went home and it was just like every, the world had changed. I, of course, was just devouring everything I could find about practice, you know, listening to a lot of like Dharma seed and things like that. But there was this big like nagging thing here where I had had this experience and I just could not, there wasn't a good explanation for it. I didn't have a good like explanation for this crazy experience that I had. And to make a long story short, as I'm digging reading all these different things, I discover Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. I read it through in the course of a week where every day when I should have been working, I was reading it, 
you know, and then at night I was just, <laughs> I was just barfing all this stuff back to my wife about it, just doing an obnoxious level, you know. Oh my God. Um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry for her. Yeah. Right. I think kind of the first thing I wanted to talk about that I'm interested in is just kind of this role, this piece is kind of lacking in our culture, especially for yeah. um, a contemporary materialistic, rational society. We just don't have a good place for wacky, crazy, deep, profound, life-changing spiritual experiences. Worst case scenario, you have like people having these experiences that go and proclaim them and they come across as like weirdos and goofballs and they just get shunned from society, right? And yeah. one of one of the alternatives is like, okay, you can go back to like traditional religion and you know, traditional religion has a place for that, but it's a, a place that kind of serves its purposes. But you know, outside of that, there's few things that serve that role of how do I make sense of this thing? And MCTB was the only thing I could find that gave me a good explanation about what I had experienced. <laughs> well, that's so. both kind of you to say, and also still really tragic that the state of the art is that it's all, you know, I mean, there are other books out there that talk about this stuff some, right? So there's, there are actually a number of books talking about spiritual emergence or emergency or peak experiences mm. and things. So there's more literature that is coming out and mm -hmm. it's a variable quality. Yeah, so luckily there is more attention that's slowly being brought to this stuff. But a lot of the time you need to look in kind of fringe literature, right? Most of the stuff is not mainstream at all or well-known. And yeah. so sometimes obscure little books or books like, you know, uh, Spiritual Emergency by the Groffs with a bunch of other people or The Stormy Search for the Self. Those books came out in the 80s and, uh, you know, mostly. And... Uh, People just don't even know about them now, you know, sort of yeah. generational tech loss, although they needed some upgrades and they had some Freudian stuff that doesn't translate as well to today. But there is a literature out there about this. And if you go looking for spiritual emergency or emergence, or those are the kind of terms you'll find this stuff under, you will find some books yeah. for peak experiences. But it is true that I don't like a lot of the maps that the people who are writing about this stuff use. I don't think they're that sophisticated or well done. It's just my biases. I think they're a great start, but we could do better. You know, but mm -hmm. I'm something of a map snob, and I admit that freely. Sure. Uh, so, yeah. you know, what can you do? Well, maps maps are not a bad thing. I mean, I've I uh for me it's it's very there's this very functional thing that when something happens, like this gets to the whole like sense making thing, right? Where it's like mm -hmm. you want to have something that tells you what just happened, yeah. what does it mean, and so what can I do with that? How can I like move forward based on this this stuff that I know, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the nice thing about about the maps is that yeah, it tells you, well, there's there's here's a little path that you might be able to to explore a little bit if this has been your experience. So, but yeah, it seems like there is kind of this gap that we need in contemporary society for. I don't know, normalizing these ex ex experiences, if that's Definitely. a good way to put it. I think that's about um, half the battle, actually. Oh, really? And then the yeah. other half is unfortunately really complicated. But yeah. What's the, what's, the, what's the other half of that? Is all the stuff about, you know, most skillful taxonomies and diagnostic uh, criteria and how do you talk about the stuff and what sort of language helps people the most to have the best outcomes 
And then how can any of that translate to more secular or clinical contexts? And how do you manage and support this stuff? What are the best practices to help people navigate in this territory? What are the best you know, harm reduction strategies or benefit maximization strategies? Uh, those are all still hotly debated, and yet with really very little good science behind any of it. So I, again, spend most mm -hmm. of my time these days trying to figure out how to organize and then fund large teams of very impressive researchers that want to answer those questions. Yeah, and that, I mean, that stuff That stuff is helpful. You posted something on Dharma Overground a few weeks back that was like some of the latest research, some some more recent stuff that had come out. I know that Willoughby Britton was on it yeah. and there was other researchers I wasn't yep. familiar with. Jared Lindahl, et cetera. And, yeah, the, the Cheetah House okay. team at the, well, the Varieties of Contemplative Experience Lab at Brown University they're definitely one of the leaders in the space that's really bringing, I think, an appropriate uh, skepticism is the wrong word, but a, a willingness to be sort of critical of the mainstream story that all meditation is good, that it never does anything bad, mm -hmm. and a willingness to go back to phenomenological methods to rebuild a taxonomy sort of from the ground up to try to figure out how categorization schemes emerge from the data and to explore the maps that have come before and attempt to relate them to things now and to highlight all the problems and the places where we just still don't know enough. I mean, those of us who do this and have maybe talked to thousands of people over decades and done however much practice and had however many of these experiences for themselves, a lot of us, you know, in that context think, oh yeah, we've really got this. We know what's going on. We know how to do this. But that can give a false sense of security or certainty when we haven't really done good science on this. The management strategies mm -hmm. that all of us are using actually just come from whatever tradition we came from or whatever we found that helped us or other people told us worked well and we tried it with somebody else or ourselves and maybe it made some difference. But we don't know if there was something better, if there was a better way to talk about this, if there were maybe even better maps that we just weren't seeing, patterns we hadn't noticed. Uh, et cetera, ways to do this that led to better outcomes. So we're all still learning, and there's a tremendous amount that science has to lend to this that I think hopefully, if done done well, will be a real upgrade for practitioners and people struggling in the weird end of this stuff or people who don't know about it. Because I think by the time it actually hits medical culture and is incorporated into textbooks and the DSM and ICD-10 diagnostic mm -hmm. codes and all that stuff, it will long before that have hit popular culture. Yeah. popular culture tends in this stuff tends to race far ahead of science because science is much more slow, cumbersome, expensive and taboo, whereas popular culture is flexible in this wild thing, particularly with the Internet now these days. Yeah. Yeah, that was. And so, yeah, that was kind of the, one of the things I was wondering about. So, I mean, part of my experience is that I had this amazing experience and part of the problem with Do you it, want to talk about it. Oh, sure. Do you want some more details about the experience? Is that what you're. Yeah. Okay. Um, cause this is the, this is, so this is the retreat experience that I mentioned earlier, I guess. Okay. To go into more, some more detail about the experience. Let's see. I'd been meditating probably about 13 years before I did this retreat. I had kind of gone through a like midlife crisis about a year before, which is where, mm -hmm. which is where I discovered wizard of Earthsea, which we'll have to get to at some point, which is one of the clues oh, that, yeah. that, that MCTB was the right for me when I, when I found it. I finally, well, the references to raising Arizona didn't, didn't hurt either, Yeah. but I, uh, I decided to do a retreat and there was a local retreat that was really cheap. And so I did this five day retreat 
And it was like, most of it was really nice. You know, first couple of days, like kind of sucked, you know, leading up to that, I'd gotten a little bit more consistent with my practice, like doing kind of a half an hour more regularly. And I think I probably had experiences that you would describe as being Jonic experiences leading up to it, even though I didn't recognize them as such. But going to this street was just like first couple of days were rough. Then I settled into it and it was like, all right, this feels good. You know, I'm just sitting here. I'm just kind of doing my thing. And then the teacher gave this, this little talk about Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Chah is this story of like, oh, why are you always so happy? And he said like, oh, this glass, see this glass here. I love this glass because I know it's already broken. And that was kind of the teaching on impermanence was like, oh, we're, we are all already dead. We are all already sick and old, etc. And so the morning after that, I got up and I was meditating and just very, very like, okay with what was happening. My attention was like going from sound to my body to my mind, to my breath, an unintentional Vipassana, right? As I'm, I'm sitting there and this story started to go through my head, this lesson. And I started imagining myself growing old, dying, being sick and my wife and my children in great clarity. And then all of a sudden there was this huge welling of like how wonderful life is. That was the phrase that came into my mind, just how wonderful life is. And right as that surged up, there was just this like, explosion of light in my chest and then i just opened my eyes and just pure classic happiness so very a and p right as far as yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely it's classic yeah and it was and i had i had dealt with depression for many many years and it was gone and it was at least so very very high that high dropped it was like drug level for like 20 minutes where it felt like i was on um, you know mdma it dropped down, but I was on a high that slowly, slowly decreased over the next like three months. You know, it was like the next month, it was just everything was beautiful and perfect and felt great. But yeah, there was this thing that's like, what happened to me? I'm like, what would a neuroscientist say about this? And I couldn't find anything about science explaining it in any way. So I'm listening to Dharma Seed talks and learning about all of these poly terms that drove my family crazy, like telling my wife, like, dukkha, dukkha, you know, ah. I got to know about dukkha, you know? Um, oh, my God. Yeah. And so I was I was being that obnoxious guy. I told everyone I know about it. I'm like, I have to talk. I have to tell you about this experience. I got to tell you about this experience, which, I mean, this kind of gets yep. to this classic, this, this topic. And, oh, and I got to say, when I read, there's a section in, in MCTB that says, like, you know, if you are you know, someone that seeks out books like these, that's highly suggestive that you may have. And I was just laughing out loud when I, when I read that section, you know, cause like, ah, okay, finally something <laughs> explains what just happened. But there is this kind of gap that has been difficult. I mean, there's, there's the problem of, okay, I have to integrate this new information into my life, which I feel like has almost taken me a year to do. Like I finally kind of settling into like what this means and how to integrate it into my life. Um, you know, so many things happen, like you're questioning everything when something like that happens, but also there's this issue of communicating it with other people where I'm yeah, trying to tell other people tough. that matter to me in my life, Hey, here's this thing that happened. And, you know, I can get on Dharma overground and I can read reports of practitioners that are much more advanced than me. And it's gobbledygook to me, but I know that the stuff that I'm saying is, it sounds gobbledygook to people that, that haven't experienced that too. Right. That is and true. So. It's the, I think it's part of the problem of the normalization is like, okay, how do you create a bridge between these experiences? And then there's this other world where maybe you haven't experienced these things and to have people, you know, at the very least understand them. 
But then there's also the yep. second thing of like, and I'm not sure where you where you stand on this, but like, like the evangelizing of these things, like to go out and tell people like, hey, here's this thing that could be better for you or for the world. So I have super mixed feelings about evangelizing this stuff. Hmm. And on the one hand, I totally get it. I've been there. Mm -hmm. Right. I wrote this book. I founded a community, other community, you know, fire casino stuff, help, you know, write the fire casino book. I help people with the stuff all day long. It's what I've dedicated my life to. It's the most important thing there is for me by far the most important stuff I ever did in my life. I've, you know, been in the super highs of the A&P where I just wanted to tell everybody to practice and yeah. thought, of course, everybody will understand, you know, how could you not, blah, <laughs> you know, right? The unbelievable naivete of uh, the zealot. So I've yeah. been there. I get it. On the other hand, I've also seen that zealousness break up a lot of relationships, cause a lot of irritation, a lot mm. of pain, occasionally push p people you know, with peer pressure or whatever to go do retreats and stuff that landed them in territory and experiences they did not sign up for, really weren't looking for, and maybe weren't ready for, it kind of looks like. Mm, yeah. I've seen the fixation on this rec marriages, careers, and education, and uh, people's responsibilities to their children and aging parents and finances and all of that stuff. I know people at the far end who have killed themselves because of this Jeez. stuff. Quite sure, directly, causal. Even more than that, who either have attempted to kill themselves or were about to, and myself or somebody else managed to basically talk them down off the ledge or whatever This is like people in the extreme throws of like Dark Knight yeah, territory, basically. Yep. Yeah. And um, okay. people who have gone really quite kind of crazy, ended up in patient psych, ended up in ERs, ended up on mm. meds, you know, ended up with bipolar diagnoses and and stuff that they later didn't have, you know, because days or weeks or months later, they it went away and they weren't bipolar. Yeah. You know, they didn't cycle again like that in that kind of crazy, really unstable way. I've seen a staggering amount of complexity from this stuff. I think of this as like, it's kind of like adolescence. A lot of like eight or 10 year olds or not eight, nine, 10 year olds look at adolescence and they think they're kind of weird. They're kind of crazy. <laughs> You know, and yeah. while from a certain kind of developmental point of view, you could go, well, they're older, it's a more mature human, they're, you know, moving towards adulthood or whatever. From another point of view, you could go, adolescence is a mess for a lot of people. It's mm. risky, it's complicated, it's the emotions, the, the feelings, the new peer circles, the new concerns, the situations you end up finding yourselves in, totally different directions in your life. It's a real dramatic change that without a lot of support for, which our culture does not provide a lot of support for or normalization of, it often goes badly. And so mm -hmm. like, and I don't mean to like say, oh, you know, people who have gotten to this territory are like moving towards adulthood and other people aren't because, you know, I know a lot of people who have never entered this territory who are unbelievably mature, incredibly productive, helpful, cool people, obviously. But, mm -hmm. you know, and so then the question is, is activating that growth cycle or that um, process good for everybody? And the answer is clearly no. Yeah. Right. Which is what the mindfulness people and even most people selling deep end meditation don't want to tell you. Mm -hmm. But if you're like me and you hang out a shingle and say, I'll talk to anybody about your weird meditation stuff, you get to talk to thousands of people who have really struggled 
you know, in a way that this stuff seems directly, immediately, if not perfectly causal of, then at least extremely contributory to. And while you also get to see a lot of wisdom and growth and amazing things and people tapping into deeper potentials in their minds and waking up and all that good stuff, it's nothing resembling free. You know, the, the, <laughs> the, the opportunity costs, the risks are all yeah. real. And, you mm -hmm. know, I'm not the first to have said this, right? I mean, this is not new that spiritual practices might be dangerous or destabilize people or even potentially society, right? This is, this is not a new idea or radical. I mean, this is, that's an idea that's thousands of years old. You find people talking about spiritual difficulties in the text, going in their hero's journey, entering the underworld, being tempted, et cetera, by the devil or whatever. And, you know, mm -hmm. these are old themes that you find in all basic you know, spiritual traditions having to deal with trickster figures or whatever, however way you want to conceptualize this stuff in your particular orthodoxy or wherever you're coming from. But the point is that I, I don't ev evangelize this stuff anymore in an active way to people who are not already there and interested. I don't go out and I yeah. never talked about this stuff at work unless someone came up to me and said, hey, I found your stuff and I had this experience. It's really interesting. You want to talk about that? OK, I'll yeah. talk with you. But otherwise, I never did, ever. Like, and you know, so, and, and with family, like I don't, <laughs> like I don't talk with them about this stuff unless they come to me and say, "Hey, could you want to talk about this?" And they're going to have to start that conversation. They know I'm doing it. They know about my book yeah. and stuff. If they're interested, cool. I'm here for you. And if not, let's talk about ice cream or the weather or, <laughs> or you know the debates or whatever. You know, or yeah, just you know kick back and watch some I, TV or play some cards or something. I don't know. Yeah. And most of the time in my experience, it's not like I, I don't really ever run into people that are interested. It's like when I do volunteer it, it's usually like the eyes glass over, you know, yeah. it's, the interest almost becomes like immediate. If, if someone doesn't have something that, that where they can relate to it in some direct way. Yeah. So it's, it's usually not very productive anyway to even, even try to do that. But it's sometimes it's so exciting just to want to like tell people all the cool stuff that's happening inside your head. <laughs> yeah, which is why if you're going to go into the stuff, you got to get a friend circle somehow. You've got to reach out to mm -hmm. people. You've got to connect with other practitioners. Rather, why is it a super lonely business? It's kind of like going yeah. through medical school. We all were plunged in, in residency. We're all were plunged into this thing that it was extremely hard for anybody who wasn't doing it to understand. You know, mm. if you were doing another intense degree program or maybe law school, you could kind of understand. But really what we were being thrown into was, was in some ways sort of unique. I guess if you were going through nursing school or mid-level school, PA, um, nurse practitioner school, APP school, then it would be similar, but really not quite. And so we needed to talk with each other about it. And if you tried to burden your partner or your friends or whatever with it, you know, usually they had a two or three minutes they could kind of sort of go there out of sympathy or something just because sure. they liked you but uh, or hopefully or wanted to try to be helpful and end a listening ear but it's not the same as talking to people who are in it with you it's just different yeah so yeah that's been actually one of the best things and some of it was intentional but I mean MCTB I should say is one of the things that's great about it is that it is a great counter to, to zealousness I think you do say a lot of things in there to kind of say like, okay, the AMP is amazing, but it's not everything. So, you know, relax, don't go nuts, you know, and it also prepares people for, for the rough territory. 
And one of the very helpful things for me was just getting the idea of like, oh, I, you want to get people on speed dial, you know, you want to connect with some people. And so as my practice progressed, you know, I started getting to know people on Dharma Overground, which was very, very helpful. Nice. But, you know, the first time I had a bump, I had like a this dream that I woke up from where I was like suddenly this is like my first dark night type experience where I woke up from this horrifying apocalyptic dream and nothing was safe. I was lying in my bed and it's just this feeling of openness and terror and having some moment where it's like, I need to, I need to find a teacher now. And so, you know, taking the time to, to get out and find a teacher was a very good thing because as things progressed, like they did get bumpier and it was very, very good having someone there that understood the territory and, and obviously Dharma Overground too, you have a lot of people that are like, okay, yeah, this is normal. And I'm trying to explain this stuff to other people. It's like, I'm having these panic attacks, yada, yada, yada. And other people are like, oh my gosh, what's going on? You know, this is like freaking me out, you know? So, Do you have any history um, of anything like that beforehand or was that all new for you? No. Some, I mean, I had something years ago that, that at a very stressful moment that was like a panic attack. And so I had, I, it, it was, was situationally really, it was induced, right? Yeah. The funny thing, it wasn't during practice. I had I had a few like four or five events within a month's time. No, but I'm talking about always... the thing long ago. Like, had you ever had any history of anything like that, like you know, no. panic attacks in ordinary life? So this was something new that started after your rising and passing away event. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's quite, quite a long one time of the, after. And the reason I say that is because a lot of people who listen to these podcasts who are a little bit cynical about these maps or whatever will say, "Oh, he had you know he must have had panic attacks before." or something, and this is, you know, just previous mental health history, you've had previous trauma, you know, it's something mm -hmm. like that. It can't be this age, stages of insight, it couldn't be daily life meditation. We get into debates like this, and there's a journal debate right going on okay. right now for some people who say, well, this stuff can't possibly happen except in very intense retreats to rare practitioners, never get into these stages in daily life off retreat, etc. And there's a school of thought yeah. that thinks that. and. I don't believe that's true, but a lot of yeah, me a lot of right. And the thing is, a lot of people who talk about this stuff, they write it off and they say, "Oh, he must have had a previous history." But mm. I've talked to way too many people who had nothing like this ever happened before, and then all of a sudden they're in stuff that's new. So yeah, yeah. And in my experience, it was it was just uncanny because I had this really really long A and P, and I kept saying like, "Okay, I know it comes next on the maps. So when is it going to happen? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen?" And I think I actually hit a second AMP before, you know, this other stuff happened. Um, what was it like? And, and what circumstance? For the, the second one, yeah. the second AMP. Mm -hmm. or, so it was after I went through a few months where practice just felt bumpy, but not really bad. And I did another retreat during that time that was just a weekend retreat that was just felt kind of blah. And I decided to take a month where I'm like, I'm just going to do concentration practice for a month. So I just did a month of concentration practice. What and were you concentrating the, on? The month. I was just doing breath. I was doing breath and metta. Cool. So, and that was, that was, I mean, that was the first time I really started getting like some intense, you know, pleasant, you know, places doing metta and doing breath concentration. How many hours a day um, were you doing? You know, I, I was doing an hour a day, maybe a little bit more than a, an hour a okay. day. If I could get into a really nice place, then I would just like hang out there, maybe go an hour and a half at most. And by the end of that, I started going back to noting practice and the noting practice just felt completely different and things took off and it wasn't a discrete 
event, but it was there were several several days where things just felt like psychedelic, where I I would practice and then I would go sit outside and just like feel like I was practicing without practicing. And I looked up in the sky once and it was like the clouds. It was like I was I was on acid, you know. The clouds were just like amazing that type of thing. Yeah. And then it was kind of after that experience that I had the first inkling that things were going to turn the other way. Hmm. And so then I had, I had a few of these just like moments where I was always when I was waking up. So waking up in the middle of the night, waking up from a nap and just had these things that just felt like exactly as described in the maps of how dark night type feelings ought to feel. Meaning the fear, the, the misery. I mean, one, so I'll give you one explanation. One was, um, I had one one moment where I was like, I'm going to do a micro dose today of mushrooms, you know, a very small dose of mushrooms. And in the past, it's always been a pleasant experience for me. And this time I did the dose and I just started having just these like intense icky feelings all throughout my body, like these unbearable, like un just sensations all throughout my body. I had my first experience with Kriyas where just my body started to, you know, shake and convulse and things like that. Mm. So I, and I had another another experience like that about a month later where things felt icky and horrible mm -hmm. and had these Kriyas again and then kind of panic because of these things happening, just not wanting to do anything and feeling completely vulnerable. But it was great within those experiences that I had a teacher I could immediately like call and say, this is happening. But I also, it was good that like having very supportive, like family as well. Like having like, my wife was like very, even though she doesn't practice, but having her there and being like, okay, Hey, I can support you on this, you know? So I, I do think that even people that don't practice can be very supportive in the right way. Right. If they're kind of on the same page, I guess, I guess one note just to kind of finish up is, <laughs> I mean, you're talking about how you don't evangelize. And I, I think, I feel like I'm kind of on the same page, like ever since getting into practice, I think beforehand I was, I was definitely one of these people that was like, ah, oh, meditation for kids and like teaching my kids things. And now I'm kind of like, I'm not really sure if this is stuff I want to teach my kids. You know? <laughs> yeah, I get that. Or at the very least, at the very least, I feel like if I'm going to teach them something, it's going to be very concentration heavy. Like I'll teach them some concentration stuff. If you, know, you think that and... can't get you into the territory, it definitely can. <laughs> Just so you know. That's not safe place either, huh? But okay. life isn't safe, That's good right? Know. And tons of things kids yeah. do are not safe and less safe than this. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true as well. I mean, and a lot of stuff that's worth doing in life. I, I honestly, for myself, even considering all the ickiness I've had to go through because of this, this has been one of the most like meaningful things I've ever done with my life. You know, when I think about it now, I'm like, I... I would have been just miserable if I hadn't taken on this particular challenge. Hmm. Um, but I guess, I guess, I guess one thing I want to kind of ask about, and I think you might've mentioned something this on Dharma Overground once, but maybe it isn't so much about having some sort of like really explicit evangelizing, but finding a place for pragmatic Dharma that looks something like what the psychedelic culture has done for psychedelics that within the wider culture, people are aware, are very aware of it. They understand what's going on. There's a little bit of reaction there. I'm interested <laughs> what that reaction means. But you know that it has a place in the popular culture. People are aware of it, but there definitely are a lot more people trying it, yeah. I'm sure, and running into 
all sorts of things, right? So it is true that meditation has a place in the popular culture, but it's usually, yeah. and it has quite a place these days in a lot of standing, but it's usually very low-end, low-dose, low-efficacy, low-risk mm -hmm. relatively. Not zero risk, but certainly low yeah. risk. And then psychedelics definitely have a place in the culture because they're just that. I mean, they're fascinating. You know, nearly anybody who takes them is going to have a super powerful experience of some kind. Mm -hmm. They got us, you know, a remarkable amount of both good and bad press in the 60s, and that left an indelible mark on the culture. There's all these, you know, stories about them contributing to all these you know, people who did amazing things and culture leaders and all of that stuff. There have been a lot of personalities around that. And the world of high-end meditation um, has not had that in the same way. I mean, you get people like Eckhart mm -hmm. Tolle and, you know, some of those kinds of people who end up on Oprah, but he's sort of one of these one-off, non-technical practitioner guys, right? So he's sort of like Jay Krishnamurti. That kind of stumbled into yeah, it. Yeah, like he's sort of like a Jay Krishnamurti or another one of these people who is has a very hard time, you know, understanding the range of the path and maybe how to tell other people how to do what he did. Though certainly very interesting in helping hmm. to get the message out there. But without kind of explaining the range of the middle and all the options and possibilities, the conversation is still extraordinarily limited and very mm -hmm. basic. And there's a lot of forces that want to keep it that way because the world of mindfulness, mm. kind of like the pharmaceutical industry as an industry, doesn't want the, the message this yeah. stuff can make you wild and crazy and wreck your home life and make you a zealot religious person and you know, whatever, like, <laughs> you know, cause you to freak out or have terrifying experiences that you never would have had if you hadn't done this and and the instability and the weird movements and the strange stuff. Like, they they don't want to say that because they managed to slip mm -hmm. through the scientific materialist radar basically on a message of the stuff is perfectly safe. It can only do good. Of course, you'd yeah. be crazy not to try it and do it, which I understand the compromise they had to make but they simultaneously cut them off themselves off from an honest conversation about the risks, but they also cut themselves off from an honest, dirt, detailed, thorough conversation about the actual possible benefits, right? So they lift themselves in this yeah, sort of very absolutely. limited kind of immature, but mass media spreadable, clinically acceptable form. And I personally think the culture and medicine and everything are ready to move beyond the limits that the initial innovators set on the project, uh, not everybody is convinced that's true. Well, okay, we can disagree, but um, <laughs> I understand why they hold a contrary opinion. I actually think it's interesting as I, as I look at MAPS, who are the people, you know, Multidisciplinary Association for um, mm -hmm. Psychedelic Studies, they, uh, they are the people who are pushing for psilocybin legalization in therapeutic contexts and MDMA in particular. And mm -hmm. we, I think, in the, in the high-end meditation research world are probably 20, 30 years behind them, right, in terms of an okay. honest look at this stuff. So I think, oddly enough, the psychedelic mm. people are way ahead of us in terms of the organization, mm. the funding, the high-quality research that isn't beholden 
to much of an ideology or a tradition. So there has been a bunch of research that's been done either by the TM kids or like a bunch of the mind and life people that are highly yeah. influenced by Tibetan Buddhism or whatever it is, where they've got some sort of religiously ontological, political agendas behind what they're doing. Uh, and most of the mindfulness yep. research has that, mm -hmm. just the secular version. You know, this is safe. Mm -hmm. It's all good. That, that kind of message. And so that has been helpful in some ways and very limiting, limiting in others. And so I think now we kind of need to go back to first principles and really start over and go, okay, how can we do this in a way that's better? And then you get people like the Groffs who are very influenced by a sort of a complex sort of boomerish, new agey mishmash of various traditions and Freudian psychotherapy which just doesn't translate today as well as it needs to and also doesn't have nearly as much science behind it as there was potential to have. And so, yeah, we just really need to redo a lot of this stuff. Um, and in, in doing that, hopefully that process, if we can do good science, publish it in good journals, will bring it back into the mainstream culture in a way that of course, will be politicized and distorted as we're getting to see with examples like mm -hmm. coronavirus, which you'd think would be kind of straightforward. And yet we're <laughs> showing definitively is not right. It's almost like become religious or tribal or culty or ultra sure. controversial about things that as a scientist, I would think were relatively within the realm of academic debate, but not the realm of like mass cultural division and the crazy we're seeing on the internet. So this yeah. is going to be worse than that because it's not a straightforward biological thing like a virus. And that's unfortunate. <laughs> that doesn't mean we can't get it into the clinical textbooks and the, the realm of people who are not getting so wild about this stuff that maybe we can't do something sane and reasonable. And hopefully, and that message hopefully too will be available to some segment of the public that can digest it and do something useful with it. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, you kind of referenced this before, popular culture is probably going to pick it up first before science does. But I mean, also to really do it right and to really have it function the best in society, I mean, don't we also need something other than the scientific stuff? Don't we need some sort of cultural place for it? You know. Yes. Yeah, so we need storytellers. We need mm -hmm. it in movies. We need it in novels and fiction novels. We need a mythology around it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that really helped this stuff spread in the cultures it came from originally was it was baked into their mythology, their popular culture, their statues, their icons, their heroes, their, you know, it was... It was based, we need something like a Harry Potter or a sure. Lord of the Rings or a, a <laughs> whatever the heroes it is. just sit still all day in, in this version. <laughs> well, except that's not what ends up happening. So mm -hmm. in, in the stories I would see, like your story is a very interesting one. Yeah. Right. Where you went on this short retreat, you came back into your life, you had had this experience, you were changed, you started struggling, you go into the strange, dark places. Right. It's the hero's journey yeah, of absolutely. Joseph Campbell, right, where you, a person is sort of called out, given part of a message, sent on a quest, had some transformative experience that is incomplete and they need to figure that out, just like a Wizard of Earthsea. Yeah, great segue. And curiously <laughs> enough, A Wizard of Earthsea is one of the books that I think is the closest to an insight map by far. That's so interesting. That first taste of like revelation and power and it compels them and it takes them over and then all of a sudden they're in this thing. 
mm-hmm. and it's not going on all the time. They're still out in the world. He still goes to wizard school. He's you know has all these adventures. There's politics. There's there's a lot that goes on. There's yeah. rivalry, friendship. And, and so friendship and personal growth and coming of age and all the classic stuff. But then, you know, in the end, there is the coming back to face the shadow side and to chase it and to turn it around. And then that merging of the faces as they dissolve into each other, right, is really has that. It's got not just sort of the flavor of the high end of equanimity or conformity, knowledge or realization, but it's it's almost it's got some of the specific phhenomenology and oh. some, it's it's so oh, wow. it's like whoa check that out because right? you in, in MCTB you kind, you kind of hint you just say like okay it has a lot to say about the past and you just kind of leave it at that so yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you here's my story with Wizard of Earthsea I told you that I had this midlife crisis and I for some reason I'd always been kind of curious I'd read some of Le, some of Le Guin's stuff and I really like her. And I felt like oh, I got to read Wizard of Versi, and I finally picked it up in the midst of this thing. And it was like the second I picked it up, there was this like, you know, mystical feeling of you know poetry yeah. when I was reading it. It's the only book that I finished it and immediately. I read it again the second time because I was just like, there's something here. And as I ha- started having my meditation experiences, it was like the framework I used to understand like the whole thing. The line he writes, uh, Master Ogion's house before he goes to cha- chase the the shadow, you know, Master, I go hunting. Like that yep. became like my, my mantra, you know, was like Master, exactly. I go hunting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Turning it around, going, hey, wait a second. Yeah. Yep. I'm going to, and he yeah. says this line of like, even if I have to like grab this thing and I sink down to the bottom of the ocean, I'm going to, I'm going to chase this thing down. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me, there's this line from Ron Crouch. It's I think Dark Knight stuff is really hard. Obviously Dark Knight stuff is hard to figure out how do you, how you approach it, right? Cuz you're like, okay, I'm somehow supposed to somehow supposed to like integrate this or be okay with this in some way. And he has this line I read about it that I like where he said it's it's not about being okay with it, it's about being willing to experience it, which is this small distinction but was very helpful yes. for me as far as like right. Yeah, it may drag you down to the bottom of the ocean. It's not going to be okay, but your willingness to do it, like that's that's yes. the key. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Go, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> he said he has some good stuff. Um, so I want to get a little bit more into the details. So as far as like arising is so – can we map like point by point this the points in the book to different parts on the, on the, on the map, Progress of Insight? Is that possible to do? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can certainly try to. So okay. certainly, when he unleashes the shadow, yeah, spirit thing that yeah. then haunts him for the entire rest of the book, yeah, that's clearly the entrance into the dark night. Okay, right, and yeah. then there's not quite as much of a clear A and P, except maybe depending on how you look at it that night where he weaves the fog when the soldiers are come or when his island is yeah, being attacked. that's what I was going to say. And suddenly, right, that's his right first real taste of the power. And yeah, exactly. And he knows there's something different and new and unusual, and he goes to a and level singular of depth about himself, it. right? Yeah, he never had before. So that's certainly one of these pivotal moments that then sends him on the quest and gets some entrance into the club. And then... Clearly, there's something about where he turns mm-hmm. that is very much like 
you know, that desire for deliverance. Yes. And okay. You know, that no, I'm right. I'm gonna do this. Something. Well, even the I'm humility, in. there's Terranor. He goes to Terranor, this like northern kingdom, right? Where he yeah. just wants to escape all of this. Yes. But just the this the sickly kind of safe but quiet nature of Terranor. And he finally decides to leave and just kind of the horrific, you know, where he's just running and he ends up in, you know, Ogian's back with Master Ogian and just the humility before deciding yes. to make that turn. And then the the end, very equanimity, conformity, knowledge. There's this real sense of like hmm. letting go of results, just g gliding, you know, towards the thing, like and them coming this, together and merging. This big ocean, right? This big expanse. Yeah, before yeah. Two. He's just gone Open way seas. out on the boat. Yep. Yeah. So that's super equanimity-esque, right? And he's unattached to outcome largely at this point. He just knows. And and then that merging and conformity knowledge is like very much like a no-self door. Hmm. So Because he's looking at himself, right? Yeah, and then they collapse Makes into sense. each other. <laughs> they you know, collapse into each other. <laughs> yeah, so that's super so. no-self door phenomenology, right? It's really good. Wow. So do you kind of think, do you think Le Guin was just, there's something in her subconscious that was bubbling up? Or do you think she had some experience there herself? That's a great question. I mean, she is yeah. such an extremely deep and insightful writer mm. and author. It is hard to imagine she didn't have some insight. Yeah. She okay. has that spark, that depth, that that growl, that light, that fire okay. she's 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 got that you know she's yeah. seeing something hmm. um so i don't i you know I, I couldn't diagnose her based on that but do i think there's a super high chance she would be a, would have been above the a and p oh yeah yeah i can see that and oh speaking yeah. of being an artist because right in theory this podcast is about becoming an artist <laughs> yeah one of the really interesting things about this journey is its relationship to creativity so you probably notice that the create, creative potential of the arising and passing away is impressive, right? People hmm. get all these amazing ideas, writes, I've written yeah. short stories and parts of the book and and music and all kinds of stuff in the A and in the arising and passing away, poetry. Um, and then the dark night, if you can manage to channel it into art, it's just friggin' gold. Right, but the problem is doing that. So the problem is taking yeah. art as spiritual path, and it can be done. So you get interesting books like Writing Down the Bones, where they take you know the creative writing process as spiritual exploration of this stuff. And hmm. you also see people like Alex Gray, who obviously you know been some deep journey work, and turned hmm. that into spectacular art. And so I got to write down some of this stuff. And. <laughs> So there is artistic potential in this, although it's also interesting. I know a number of artists who abandoned their craft for a long time as they hmm. went on their spiritual quest. I myself, when I was in my serious questing days, just didn't play my guitar that much. You know, yeah. went, went long periods of time without doing much that was specifically artistic except maybe Dharma writing, which is artistic, but it's not, yeah. you know. And... You so the, the funny thing is that it's got this weird relationship to art where you're likely to have a more, much more kind of cyclic relationship to it, where in the A&P, all of a sudden, levels of creativity that you may have never had before 
that kind of look like someone in the nice end of a manic episode before it becomes the bad end of a manic episode <laughs> where they can just be super creative and productive, right? They've mm-hmm. got all this energy. Their mind is bright and making connections they hadn't made before. They're on fire about something. They want to say something and they have the, the nerve to say it, right? They have the disinhibition. Yeah. They have that spark of uh, expression. Um, the juices can really be flowing from a creative point of view. And to recognize that if you're going to be in this path, you have to be realistic as yourself about an artist. You will likely experience a pretty cyclic nature to your creativity. And so if you're the kind of artist who like has to create every day for a living in a stable, reproducible way, good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that my experience was actually more kind of the latter experience for creating art. And I think that has a lot to do with with my identity being so wrapped up in art for so many years and being like, I am an artist. So that when I had this experience, uh, my AMP experience, one of the first things that, that came to me after I was done, first of all, I had this flood of creativity of like, oh, I have this artistic project. Here's all these things I could do in it. And then immediately after that, I was just like, I don't have to be an artist. (laughs) <laughs> like that doesn't that doesn't need to be what I do, and so my my experience since then has been mostly one of just stepping away from art, you know, because now you're seeing you're starting to see the gap of like here's my motivations and here are the actions, and you see that space between those things, and suddenly looking at those motivations and saying, I'm not sure about these motivations. Are these the right motivations to do this thing? So I've I've gone through quite a long period where I've stopped doing lots of things that were part of my life. Yep, get it. I, but I think that's more because that was so tied in with with what I do. So now it's kind of this phase where, you know, integration, trying to now take these things that you learn and, and say like, okay, now now what do I do? What's what's the 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 next step here? I'm kind of curious then for like, well, obviously it can have a very cyclical nature, and I've kind of accepted that now too. That like. I had ambitions, like I want to, I want to be an artist in this certain way and just always drive, 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 drive. And I'm kind of in this place now where it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of like just build a foundation now. I'm just going to focus on stability and then I'll do this artistic thing once stability is there. Right. Mm-hmm. And maybe go through a cycle like that. Do things kind of change as the, as the path progresses, like creativity as, as you have these, these kind of moments of awakening does the nature of creativity change as, as that happens? I'm curious because I'm not far enough along yet to, to be able to answer that. It's complicated. So I've found that it's harder to do art that doesn't seem to have some sort of altruistic purpose. Hmm. Right? It's not that I don't still sometimes play my guitar. In fact, I've been playing it a reasonable amount these days, and I'll just play songs that may not have any specific you know, altruistic purpose. But... I do find it much easier to apply my creative skills to things that I think will help people, to things that I think will help raise the level of a conversation, to that will inspire, that will challenge in a good way, that will that will shed a new, lighter perspective on something, uh, that will help promote wisdom or kindness. It's much easier to lend my art to those, or you know, my creativity to those things and those kinds of projects. That said, the darkness of the spiritual path can also cause it to be easier to be a rebel, to feel called mm-hmm. out, to feel the the freedom and the license and the sort of screw it 
you know, whatever, like there, it can yeah. throw off some, some shackles to sort of the rebellious side of creativity that can call things out that can, because, you know, because art is a conversation with society that is simultaneously very reflective and hopefully ennobling and, and you know, moving culture forward, but also can be super critical and calling society yeah. out and sarcastic and reactive and rebellious. And it is definitely easier to lend some rebel spirit to art when in the throes of the dark night. And a lot of great art gets created that way. That, that makes sense. And also, <laughs> I've if I was like a visual artist, it would be super hard for me not to be inspired by a bunch of the wild patterns and images and visions and strange stuff I've seen along the path. I'm not that much of a visual yeah. artist, unfortunately, but man, would I, if I was like a, a lot of, you know, I would look like Alex, you know, sort of Alex Gray-esque paintings, but different, you know, they'd be different, <laughs> but still in that vein of that style of art would be super fun to do. And yeah. I still, like I have spent a number of sessions recording a Buddhist gospel song, if that isn't the weirdest thing, with another Dharma teacher yeah. who also is an exquisite <laughs> jazz guitar player. And just super nice guy, a guy named Santiago, and from Colombia, because he's now stuck at home due to coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we've been laying tracks down back and forth, and and but it's it's specifically a Buddhist gospel song that I actually wrote like twenty years ago, and or and more than that, oh, and wow. just shelved. And now I've got the time, and I've got the tech, and I know the people, and there's the internet collaboration potential, and I've got yeah, just much better tools to and connections to to realize what the song I hear in my head. So I definitely dedicate, you know, some time to creative pursuits, although they do often have more of a dharmic focus. And I think a lot about like how you would write the stories that would I think about short stories, like I start to think about novels and how you would write the stories that explain the stuff in a way that, you know, the weird thing about those stories I would write is that you know, the rest of it might be fiction, but the spiritual experience would all be real ones that either me or some of my That'd friends true, had yeah. had. And most people would think it was mm -hmm. the reverse, <laughs> right? <laughs> that maybe there was the, the story had something to do with my friends, but the spiritual experiences were just fantasy or fiction. And sure, but that actually wouldn't be the case. So I've thought like of writing a whole, like a series, a novel or a, a something where literally every single major weird, magical or spiritual or, you know, experience was something that had actually happened based on experience yeah 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 i think that'd be that'd be super interesting so yeah one thing it's very interesting you talking about like like altruism you know as, as you're doing stuff because one thing i've 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 certainly found is that a lot of my like ambition has like really evaporated mm -hmm. like i'm really not interested in, and i guess that has to do with like Obviously, there's this whole thing of like, I want to make art so people are going to think I'm important and cool, you know, but it's it's so much more when I do think about creating and, and mostly my creative energies are, are are put into doing this podcast now or I, I do some writing. Um, you know, the funny thing about my, most of my creative energies after my AMP was just like wanting to write about the stuff that I was experiencing and learning. But it's just interesting that it feels much more like being a kid, like the stuff you made when you were a kid, right? That you're, you're doing it out of just like the pure pleasure <laughs> of, of doing this stuff. But it definitely also makes me think of like Ursula Le Guin again, 
like the stuff I've read about her writing, her other essays, it's very clear that she didn't give a fuck about like impressing anybody, <laughs> you know, yeah. that she, especially you look, you look at wizard of Earthsea and what she wrote each of each book in that series is kind of like, I'm going to write the book. That's right. That's the correct book to write. And I don't, I don't even like all the books in the series. Some of the books like just don't work for me, you know, but I'm like, yeah, the, so the glad second one is like, pretty yeah. dry. It's, it's hard. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. That's the second one's actually one of my favorites, but, um, I mean, <laughs> that's, I don't know why that is. Maybe I was still on such a high from reading her other book, but, um, I'm glad that she didn't just sit down and say like, oh, I'm just going to do the same thing over and over again. And cause yeah, the second one is so ballsy too. Right. It's like, I'm going to tell a story that all takes place inside this temple with a totally different character. But I think that's the same with all the other books in the series one of the nice side benefits of practice is hopefully getting to that place where you can make stuff for the right reasons and, and not give a shit <laughs> about what other people think about, about what you're making. One other thing I wanted to, to just get your response to is so after I read MCTB and obviously there's, there's the references to Le Guin and then you reference also Jack Vance. So because of that, I was like, okay, well, I need to check out some Jack Vance because I'm not familiar with this guy. <laughs> nice. You talk about like psychedelic visuals. Like I read his uh, The Dying Earth series. Yeah. And like just the incredible psychedelic, just cleverness and craziness of yep. that. Of that. I mean, it's a totally different. You look at Vance and something very different than Le Guin, obviously, as far as what he's doing. But he is tapping into something there, too, that is oh, yeah. like deep, deep in the subconscious with this stuff. <laughs> I'd be interested in your take on Vance. What is it about Jack Vance that works for you? Is it related to practice in any way? Too? So Jack Vance, I think pretty straightforwardly, does not have the spiritual depth of Ursula K. Le Guin. Just okay. straight up. But what did I get from Jack Vance? I love his earthy honesty about motivation and human motivation Okay. And I love the fact that he doesn't hold back, that people are in this for themselves. I I think that Mm -hmm. a lot of his characters very straightforwardly and unabashedly like are somewhat self-centeredly narcissistic. And the exploration of the honesty of that. Of course, like the the greatest example, but even (laughs) sort of Rialto and plenty of them, Mm -hmm. you know, if you look at the the Dying Earth series in particular and you look at the wizards, there's there's a little kind of friendship and altruism between them, but they're unabashedly out for themselves. Right there. And Mm -hmm. there's something sort of weirdly beautiful in that, even as pathological as it is the license to be honest Hmm. about the fact of our motivations, to be honest about who we are and our desires to, um, because Jack Vance does not shy away from exploring our baser nature with a a very bright, detailed light, (laughs) a glaring light. And and I also love his language. His language and style, particularly in his more classic works, is the the best to my ear I've ever heard. And I understand why some people don't like him. He uses a lot of very complicated words that are very obscure or archaic. But the flavor that lends 
to his writing I just find amazing. And one of the things I like a whole lot is in Rialto the Marvelous, Mm -hmm. which for those who haven't read Jack Vance, is about this group of wizards in the Earth's last age when the sun is sort of red and sputtering and dying and technology is largely faded and there's just sort of the wreckage of civilization long overgrown by forest and a few strange wizards in this weird kind of half-alliance where they get along as they need to, but they're also, as soon as they don't have a common enemy, all rivals among <laughs> each other. And But they're all really different. Mm. One of the things I like about this is I think a lot of models of spirituality presume that an advanced spiritual practitioner will look a lot like another one. Hmm. They will speak the same way. They'll have the same kind of aesthetics. They'll have the same tone of voice. They'd like the same things. They would, of course, get along if they wanted to cooperate with each other. They would, of course, like each other. Other people would like them. And they'd have this homogeneity to them, the sort of naive, like whitewashed ideal of what the spiritual realizer mm-hmm. would be like. And I take comfort in the extreme individualism <laughs> of the wizards in Rialto the Marvelous. That's very interesting. These are people who have lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. They're sort of semi-immortal. Mm-hmm. They... Um, they're, they've studied the wisdom of the ages. They're all really smart. They're, f- you know, extremely well-trained minds able to do these spectacular magical things. They don't have awakening in the classic sense of spirituality, but they have a lot of the rest of the picture. And yet these are some quirky, weird, you know, totally different costumes, different magical interests, totally yeah. different personalities and agendas, specialties. And something in the diversity of that gives me real hope for improving the models of awakening. Mm. Uh, so that's fantastic. Yeah. I just imagine um, this gang of awakened, idiosyncratic, awakened folk, and how that <laughs> might be metaphorical for for that. Yeah, I just love I love his the trope of kind of like the petty smarty pants character. That has uses big words, yeah. but is is self centered and <laughs> and hypocritical. Yes. Um, I, oh yeah. For me, the the most spiritual moment I would say from Jack Vance is in the first book. I think I like the first book the most, just because of the weird collection of stories and how they mingle together. I don't know if you remember. There's this story yeah. with Tisai's, who's like this woman cursed yeah. to hate everything. And yes, so of course. That was that was the most spiritual moment for me. Was like her arc. She goes on this arc yes. where she's like trying to like you know, solve this. She realizes that something's wrong with her, that it isn't the world. Something's wrong with her. And she goes on this quest and meets this guy that has the face, you know, and they they encounter the demon, the demon, the account, this horrible evil. And then they find this deity. And then the deity is like, he gives of justice, of justice, what they deserve, which I love. Yep. And it's kind of unexpected. And she says like, I see, I see the world, you know? And it was like, Mm -hmm. that was very moving for me because I felt like, oh, that's, that's what I experienced. That's the best description of what that AMP felt like was just being like, oh, I thought the world was one way. And it turns out mm-hmm. I was I was limited. And at the very least, I mean, obviously there's the AMP is a beginning of something. And I've already had so many different ups and downs of how that perception has changed. But it's good to know that like the viewpoint you bring into this world is not the only way to experience it. Um, That's for certain. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I agree. That is a remarkable story. And uh, their friendship and the kindness of the man who is cursed with the demon face. Yeah. 
like yeah. the real depth of his heart and humanity, and yet strength and willingness to to seek justice, and yet he's you can tell he's got a super good heart. Yeah, and um, that's the yeah, first one she meets. The, the honest exploration of the fact of humanity. Some people are just cruel and terrible people. Yeah, like that's not a popular message, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, functionally, it really is true. And and Jack Vance is extremely willing to go there and explore evil and explore the evil and shadowy sides of ourselves and put them right out there in the open unabashedly. Yeah. Well, awesome. Yeah, I definitely need to read some more Vance. I, I read a review by Le Guin of Languages of Pow. So I think that needs to be next on my list. I don't know if you've read that one. but Oh, I, I, I've read all of Vance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have his complete works. And I okay. actually have the CVIE, which is the Compact you know, Vance Integral Edition, which has all of his books in it. And wow. yeah, I've... Um, the only stuff I have not read of all of is his, he wrote under a pseudonym, Ellery Queen, mm. wrote some um, like mystery, mystery thrillers. I, ha yeah. I haven't read all of those, so not as much a fan. But actually, one of the other stories I truly love is Green Magic. Green Magic. This is another Vance? This is a short story, and okay. it's, you'll find it in various collections, depending on... <laughs> um, but Green Magic, you can actually download it on the internet. I think the text of it is available. Okay. So if you get a chance to check out uh, Green Magic, I highly recommend it. And oh, awesome. I, I won't even give away the... Uh, just read it. It's, it's okay, not that okay. long. That's, that's fine. And um, I won't what? give away why I think it's so important. But so, so what's more dangerous, evangelizing the Dharma or evangelizing Jack Vance? What? <laughs> yeah, like, uh, you know, given that he's such a niche writer yeah, and like yeah. people most like either love him or hate him and the hate potential is pretty prevalent yeah right because his language is so off-putting and whatever but for those who love him oh my god so yeah. i think i think the thing to do is just <laughs> recommend the, the tale the dying earth you know the tales of the dying mm -hmm. earth the first of those four novels and it, they either like it or they don't yeah and I think not much harm done if you just say, oh, you could check out this book. And if sure. it's not your thing, I get it. But I think, yeah, yeah the Dharma's da more dangerous than Vance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's pretty clear, huh? Now, I don't like everything about Jack Vance, right? So you can find in Jack Vance, you can find some stuff that to today's ear definitely rings a touch misogynistic. Yeah, You can absolutely. find a few, a few places in Vance that definitely read a touch... Mm, racist is kind of the wrong word, but sort of certainly culturist um, yeah. a little bit. And you can definitely find a few passages where he, there is clearly some homophobia, particularly mm. in um, one of his his great trilogy, the Leoness trilogy, or Lioness, however you want to say it. Uh, I think Leoness. But otherwise, it's a great story. So you, um, I don't mean to forget. I don't mean to like make excuses for him, you know, or excuse the time he lived in. I'll just stop there. Those elements <laughs> okay. are also there too, and I recognize those. Yeah, and at the same time, like list, uh, reading this whole section where where Kujil was like a, a worming or hired as a worminger, the details of that was about the hardest I've ever laughed. Like reading. Oh my god! <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Right, you know, you know something disgusting is going on if you're not quite exactly sure what's happening. But yeah, right. so 
you kind of feel like he deserves it a little bit too. So that's nice. Oh, absolutely. That's one of the other things I like about Vance is justice. So even though justice is not always perfectly done, it's almost always done and almost always done in some kind of humorous way. Yeah. So like that fate has a sense of humor is one of the things I really like about Vance. There's something comforting in that. Cujo is almost always seeding destruction wherever he goes. But almost yes. everyone deserves it, right? That's, that's yes, that's it. true. <laughs> right. Okay. Excellent. Have you read the Demon Princess, by the way? No. Is that another Vance? Oh, the Van- the Demon Princess. So it's okay. his sci-fi stuff. But there is some. It's almost like slipped in in the margins. There's some excellent commentary on society and people, mm. and he, there there is some good, really good stuff in there. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Dying Earth has been the only thing I've read of his so, so far. And so I was like, okay, Languages of Pow. And I'm reading other things and stuff. But And uh, The Moon Moth. If you can find the short story, The Moon Moth. Okay. Uh, great one. I mean, there's a lot of great ones, you know, but that's... Good ones. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's nice. Uh, I went through a, the, a period of, of kind of like Dharma wackiness for... For, for quite a while and I feel like I'm finally getting back to a, a place in my life where I feel normal so nice <laughs> it's cool. kind of nice just to be like okay I can read things besides like obscure <laughs> dharma books it just gets to a point where it's like you want to that's you've had enough like I remember just getting to a point halfway through some dharma book where I'm just like I'm just I'm ready to read something else now <laughs> right and then there there's literature like Le Guin that is both Right. It's yes. Le Guin is Dharma straight up. Like, I think, yeah. you know, like yeah. just unabashedly a lot of a lot of wisdom and insight there and potential for growth reading her stuff. I just think she's incredible. But yeah. um, also, like I just read a book, uh, Circe by Madeline Miller, and okay. it's about the witch Circe who, you know, turned men into pigs or in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Odysseus's men. The interesting thing about it is it's a fascinating exploration of like three of the major realms, the go- you know, the Asura realm, the low jealous warring gods and the human realm, oh. the animal realm. Okay. And the comparison between those and and there are some characters that actually move back and forth along that spectrum oh, and become I'm really one of the others. In this. You get to see how they yeah. reacted to various incarnations um, that all happen within the book. Can, but can also I ask it's you, just a is... great story and uh-huh. um so yeah. Is this I remember reading um Shargal posted something that was about the is did you ever read his post about that? He talked about the different realms. This is about also like the gel, uh, the hungry gods and the hungry ghosts. The hungry ghosts. Is that the same if that's the same thing? Is that kind of the same? That's the realms I'm talking about, absolutely. Okay, okay. And, awesome. and speaking of Dharma books, by the way, if you like stuff about the realms, Transcending Madness by Chogyam Trungpa, always a favorite okay. at parties. No, it's hard reading, but <laughs> it's fun. So Transcending Madness. Yeah. How did, yeah, how did, did you ever, did you ever read a uh, never ending story? No. You haven't Nor read have that I one? seen the movie, weirdly enough. I'd be interested how that would land on you. I had, a, I had, that was definitely another book that was kind of a spiritual book for me. The guy that wrote it, Michael Ende, he grew up in like a Waldorf community. So cool. he had these experiences with, I, I don't know. I don't know a ton about all the, what's the name of that group? The, 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 Theosophical Society. But I know they had like some Eastern influences and they were doing meditation and stuff like that. But it has a very interesting spiritual arc that just now I'm kind of thinking about may tie into 
to, to Dharma in some, in some way. So I don't know, worth, worth checking out. <laughs> nice. Thank you. I appreciate the recommendation. All right. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again, Daniel. You've been listening to how to be an artist to support this podcast. You can go to patreon.com forward slash H2BNA.